guess we should sort of introduce what we're trying to do here. This is the um, the first episode of uh, the Analytics FC podcast. Um, I'm Tom Warville, um, and you are... I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm Sam Gregory. Um, so, I am a student at the University of Leeds, studying economics, um, and currently living in London on a placement year. And Sam, you've just finished your undergrad, is that correct? Yeah, I'm in between degrees, I guess. So I just finished my undergrad in economics at McGill, and I'm headed to London to uh, do my master's next year. Woo. Master's in... In economics, again. Oh, cool, cool, nice. Um, so yeah, that's us. Um, I'll add our uh, Twitter handles into the bio of this uh, podcast. Um and also, do, 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 why are we doing this podcast? So, um, for me, and I guess for you as well, Sam, we, we both sort of listen to the uh, Anfield Index podcast, um, the Starts Bomb podcast when it's around, and the um, American Soccer Analysis podcast as well. So, really, there's only sort of three options now, two options on the market if you want to listen to people talk about numbers and football and <laughs> that sort of stuff in general. Um, yeah, well... For me, I think a lot of it, too, is that most of the, the soccer analytics world is confined to Twitter, which means all of your conversations have to be 140 characters. <laughs> it's difficult to get too in-depth into any real discussion online, especially on Twitter when you have the character limit. So I think it's nice to actually have these long-form discussions and go more in-depth into topics we couldn't otherwise do. Exactly, exactly. And um, as fun as tweet storms can be, um, I'm not sure everyone fully enjoys them 100% of the time especially when people are getting into like <laughs> 6, 7 tweet long yeah it's uh, yeah I agree so um, living on opposite side of the globes too that uh, on opposite sides of the globe I'll wake up in the morning and realize that I've missed some 60, 70 tweet long discussion <laughs> on Twitter and gotta catch up and I'm sure you have the same thing when you wake up and exactly the same. all the Americans and Canadians have been going at it all night exactly the same yeah yeah, yeah. and you're there scrolling for ages so <laughs> yeah. I completely agree so yeah it's uh, it's gonna be nice to sort of bring it to a a more audible and, I guess, digestible format for everyone. Um, hopefully going to have um, a guest every podcast. Um, I guess now would be a good time to say who we're going to have this week. Um, so we've got Richard Whittle coming on, who um, everyone in the analytics community has probably heard of him, probably read some of his stuff. Um, he's written for a whole host of places. So we've got Prozone, New Yorker, Guardian, 21st Club... Uh, betting expert, loads and loads of places. So Richard's sort of been a mainstay in the uh, analytics community for about four or five years. So I think that for a first guest, um, as far as first guests go, it'll be uh, be good to see from his perspective how the sort of scene's changed and and what he's sort of learnt along the way and where he thinks it's going. So, yeah, we'll have Richard coming up soon. Um, so Sam and I also write um, in the analyt- uh, around football analytics, um, so I write on my own personal blog, Analytics FC, which this podcast is named after, um, and Sam, you write for Sportsnet? Yeah, which has been a fun, a very fun experience. I mean, it's not an analytics website at all, it's a mainstream site, which means you get a lot of, you have to go, go slowly and explain everything and go... I mean, you have to make it as accessible as possible, which I think is a good exercise, but I've really enjoyed it so far. And recently you went to, was it one of the Montreal games, I think? Yeah, I was at, I've been at a couple of Montreal games over the past month, and uh, so 
a couple as a fan, and then my first one is press, which is, I don't know, it's a very strange experience going to your first game in the press box. Firstly, just because when a goal goes in, everyone is silent while fans are cheering <laughs> or swearing around you. And, uh, yeah, it's a very weird atmosphere up there. So, yeah. one, <laughs> I don't you know, know if, I, I think... I think I prefer watching the game in the stands, but it was it was a good experience. Yeah. Did you um, did you catch any of the CCL games or? Yeah, I was at uh, the first two games, and I was moving the day of the final. So. Oh, nightmare! nightmare. <laughs> I was unable to go to the final, but I was at the semi and quarter. Oh, that's good. And you're a Montreal fan, or? Uh, sort of. I grew up in Kingston, which is a city halfway between Toronto and Montreal. Right. And when I started watching soccer, um, none of the MLS teams existed. So there was the Montreal Impact USL team, which was a division down, and the Toronto Lynx, as they were called back then. Hmm. And so I sort of just latched on. I support all Canadian teams, which doesn't make me too popular <laughs> with the hardcore Toronto or Montreal fans. But, I yeah, it's hard for me to sort of pick one team over the other. Yeah, yeah. And um, Manchester United as well? Is that a... Yeah, that one is easy to pick over the others. And that one is just because... Well, in Canada, we get a lot of Premier League games, and we have done ever since I was young. So when I was just getting into the sport, they would be the team on TV all the time, and they had David Beckham. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> And he was probably the one player I knew back when I first started getting into it just from playing with kids and who would say, oh, I'm... I want to be like David Beckham when I grow up, and that was that was the launch pad for it. Yeah. yeah. So, what did you think when he came over to MLS? Uh, I well, I'd matured a little bit when he came well, over. Yeah. I knew a little bit more about the sport than just Beckham. So you weren't fang- I, I was... fangirling as much when he came over. <laughs> no, I was. I mean, I was excited. I um, I I don't think it worked as well as MLS was hoping it would work. There's a great book actually by Grant Wall called The Beckham Experiment, which if you're getting into MLS, that is a book you have to read. It's much more about the league itself than Beckham. And it uh, it talks about sort of why why Beckham was important, but at the same time why it wasn't the smash success and why it almost is a sign of maturity for the league that it can't just be it can't just be changed overnight by having one player come over who is... And if we're honest, I mean, he's not the best of these big players that come over from Europe. I mean, Thierry Henry had a much more impressive career in Europe than Beckham ever did. Yeah. Kaká, at his best, was better than Beckham ever was. So, I mean, he was the first big name, but there has been better talent that's come over since then. I think that's the, exactly the same sort of argument when he retired um, overall from the game. Um, like, he, he was a good player. And he was a good crosser, and he's good at free kicks. But in terms of his all-round sort of general game, there was nothing else that sort of stood out. And he was more of a of an icon for terms of moving to Real Madrid or starting so young at, uh, at Manchester United um, versus, I guess, his overall talent level and his whole game. Whereas you look at, say, uh, I don't know, Kaká, he's probably a, a much more full, you know, well-rounded player despite his injury problems and. Um, he's sort of shining in that team even though he's surrounded by well he's going to shine in that team because he's surrounded by arguably lesser talented players um, but no I, I, t- I totally agree so the better question though is you write a lot about MLS how does someone who is <laughs> a 20 some living in Britain <laughs> decide that they want to start focusing on MLS <laughs> that is a, yeah that is a good question um, and I guess ties in nicely with me asking you about Manchester United so yeah um MLS, wow. Okay, um, I, I guess really it's down to the sort of 
the, the being a student of economics and, and going into my final year from September, um, I've always sort of wanted to apply what I've learned in economics to sports and, and football specifically, just because it's an area I'm interested in and, and something that writing about it doesn't seem mature. Um, and the and MLS sort of provides a league with so many um, roster. Uh, what would they be? Sort of <laughs> restrictions and rules yeah. and all these sort of niche um, barriers to entry in the whole league that, that as an economic problem in itself is, is quite interesting versus, uh, say, the Premier League where essentially the higher your wage bill, the better place you finish in the league sort mm. of thing. It was more correlated with um, the amount of spending you put on your team versus how well you spend that money. Um, and an MLS is sort of a lot more competitively balanced with teams having similar roster sizes, the same sort of money to spend on players. There's a lot more focus on, on how you allocate that money, uh, the performances of the players, and the margins between one team and another are a lot finer. So the sort of the sort of economic problem with MLS is quite interesting and also um, potentially buying it now and watching it grow into one of the sort of bigger leagues in the world in the next 10, 15 years maybe. We'll see. But... Um, yeah, it's a fun league. Um, it's quite accessible, um, and I don't really. I think sometimes it takes itself too seriously, and other times you just got to laugh. At the at the quality of football is just shocking, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's entertainment. <laughs> Hey, sorry, the discombobulated this morning. I'm starting a part-time editorial position and emailing and all this. You know how it goes, Mondays. Mondays. <laughs> yeah. Classic Mondays. Editorial position, yeah. where's that at? At uh, Paste Magazine. I'm taking over for Daryl. Oh, um, awesome. Nice. Yeah, Daryl Grove. So, uh, so yeah, it's kind of fun. I have a little budget to work with, and we'll see what I can do. Yeah, look forward to it. That'd be good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Richard, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, you basically got it. I used to um, I used to be the uh, features writer and editor at thescore.com, which was a website for a television station, which is now a digital company. Um, and then I left, well, I guess I was pushed out a year ago uh, and have been freelancing ever since. So yeah, some of the publications you mentioned, um, I guess uh, New York Times as well in addition to that. So yeah, um, and so most of the time, I do general purpose writing about soccer, but my specialty is, uh, as you mentioned, analytics, and that's probably how I know both of you and, and how I know, uh, Lisa, I would say, a good portion of your listeners for this first episode. And congrats on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Um, cool. So I guess the, the sort of first question is, um, football analytics is quite a niche um, in terms of, I guess, from the face of it, there's not many bloggers in, c- compared to, I say... Um, sabermetrics bloggers when that sort of took off in baseball so for you to choose analytics or to really make it a niche how did that come around yeah it's kind of a it's kind of a fun it was a fun situation for me um so when i worked at the score i worked with alongside um writers like um dustin parks and drew fair service um uh, scott lewis and these these are all guys who you know they're uh, off the beaten path sports writers um 
but was what was interesting about them is they all had very strong knowledge of sabermetrics um, in baseball and also, you know, the the sort of burgeoning analytics movement in ice hockey. And uh, and so, but they were, you know, they were also outsiders. So, you know, they they looked at these things with interest, but they also had a very healthy, you know, skeptical uh, outlook on things. Um, so that was sort of my baptism into the analytics scene in sports. Mm-hmm. And and that sort of inspired me to start looking um, looking for um, analysts who are doing the same thing, same things in in uh, in football. So I don't remember how it started exactly. I knew I knew a few analysts. Um, I knew Sarah Rudd. Uh, I knew her work through. Uh, I guess someone had written about her, and I started reading up on on the work that she was doing with uh, Stat DNA. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I somehow discovered James Grayson's work. Uh, he of the you know the guy who developed uh, the total shots ratio yep. metric, which is you know, I guess one of the big two used these days, and uh, so it was really fun to sort of see to find his blog, and um, you know to me what was sort of really compelling, interesting stuff that wasn't getting a lot of attention. So it was just for me it was this huge opportunity to to shine a light in an area that uh, that not too too many people in the mainstream. Uh, soccer world knew about um, and uh, and yeah, it sort of sort of took off from there. I started a weekly column, and and it just uh, you know it was just fun to connect to connect analysts together and and sort of try to get the community a little more in touch with each other and, and get some good work going. So it was it was really awesome. It's just a good timing and uh, definitely and uh, yeah, a good source of content for for a site where I had to you know, pump out quite a lot of it. <laughs> and, and sort of longer term as well, um, w- analytics, I guess, a lot of people would, would agree is, is sort of in its uh, infancy in football and you've only got a handful of uh, actual, you know, use cases, let alone uh, successful use cases. Um, I say with, with Brentford, um, Toronto trying out as well, uh, New England Revolution. Are, are Toronto successful? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if we call Toronto FC successful yet. But well, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, Devin, uh, uh, Devin is still. You know, I think he's still. Devin Pooler's just took the job there. Um, I think he's still, still getting his feet wet. So you have to, you know, you have to be very patient before you uh, we hold TFC to any uh, accountability for their use of stats. Definitely, and I guess with them, I'd say on the topic of Toronto, they're not going to have a home game for another couple of weeks as well. So something yeah, that, something exactly. that um, yeah is obviously going to affect them. So um, we'll see. I mean, Sam asked me that question at the end of the season, and I'll uh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you actually you you know this, Richard, but uh, I actually got into analytics through the Footy blog because I. I'd read it for a long time and had no idea this sort of community existed and found guys like James Grayson through reading the uh, the Score Footy blog. So that was sort of my entrance into it. And it's changed a lot since I've been following it. And I'm wondering, what changes have you seen since you started writing about this probably four or five years ago now? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's been exponential. Um, it's... Uh... I mean, obviously, the changes in terms of the number of people uh, getting into the field—that um, was sort of a big one. The the changes in terms of uh, the interest, I think. I mean, uh, you guys may or may not agree, but my impression was is that people, their understanding of statistics in in uh, soccer, you know, 
for a good long time uh, was basically just measuring measuring things and assuming that they had intrinsic value because they were measured whereas they weren't measured before, if you know what I mean. So the idea of doing like and and, and uh, um, you know trying to find season long correlations and and to sort of the more uh, predictive side of it, um, where you get into things like repeatability and and uh, um, and you know you're making uh, I guess more betting betting oriented analytics. I think a lot of that stuff wasn't wasn't getting a ton of attention, and that's not quite maybe that's not quite fair because I know um, uh, Matthew uh, Benham was was obviously made his fortune from from developing fairly robust uh, predictive metrics in in sports. So so I think uh, some of the stuff that, that he's doing both both in England and, and in, in Denmark are probably a little more advanced that way. But I think most clubs sort of saw, saw statistics as well. We, we measure things and then we assume they have worth and then uh, sort of maybe more performance analysis than stats analysis. So the big change, I think, is because a lot of the stuff that was being done on the betting model side, um, that's that's got a lot of mainstream attention now. I think now clubs are starting to see the value Um of that approach um, in how they they you know and how they do stats stats analysis. So that's been you know broadly speaking that's probably the biggest change. And obviously in in this the shorter term um, you know the explosion of interest in in expected goals models and uh, you know a lot of the uh, the sort of uh, cross uh, pollination between soccer and, and and ice hockey analytics. So um, so obviously we saw that already with with TSR and PDO and and. Now it's coming out with, uh, um, you know, game states and other things here and there, and, and we're starting to see where the differences lie. So, so yeah, there's been as much as we talk about how it's uh, the field's in its infancy. It's it's still growing very very quickly, and I think it's it's grown so far. Touchwood fairly responsibly as well, where you can't say the same thing has happened in in every other sport. Um, so so yeah, I think the changes have been pretty pretty rapid, and and definitely I think we're seeing. A, a, a greater understanding of the difference between, you know, uh, raw statistics, raw data, and and uh, and and uh, meaningful analysis, and I think clubs are now slowly starting to get that message as well. Definitely, <clears throat> definitely, um, and and that sort of point on, on using well using the data and actually finding meaning in it. Um, one of the best examples I can think of is probably with um, Yap Stam at Man United. Um, with him, I think the the story goes that. Um, Alex Ferguson saw that uh, he wasn't making as many tackles per game, something like that, and then sort of realised or uh, inferred from that that he was becoming a worse defender and, and shipped him out of the club. But it was actually that he was his positioning was so good that um, he didn't have to make as many tackles or, or interceptions or whatever the the sort of metric that they thought uh, was of use was. And, and I guess now for clubs, they're sort of slowly getting that understanding of total number of key passes that a player makes that's not necessarily a, a big um you know part of how how well is how good he is as an attacker purely because that stems from the number of shots taken from the passes he makes and and the sort of plays he's passing to so for me it's definitely even only writing in a short space of time and, and being interested for about um a year or so just seeing how people are starting to ask more questions around around the data and and trying to say you know Ask more questions and 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 try and find out whether um, is actually what the data is representing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's super encouraging. I mean, now, I mean, obviously, we have no idea a lot of the time what goes on within 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 clubs. But in, in, the, in the, from the media perspective, 
you know, the difference between now and say like five years ago is, is, you know, if someone publishes something that says, you know, maybe the equivalent, I mean, this morning, a, a telegraph writer who I won't name because <laughs> they sort of been uh, ganged up on a little, but, uh, you know, publishing a list of stats in terms of kilometers covered, um, over the season or over or over the 90 minutes and, and sort of trying to equate that with, with work effort. And obviously that's yeah. a sort of extremely wrongheaded way to go about it. Um, and maybe five years ago that would have been published and people would have sort of looked at it and made, made all sorts of erroneous conclusions. And now there's, there's a, a little, you know, uh, community of, of, of people to point out why that this stuff is incorrect. So I think it's good. I think that the more, more voices than are out there who are pointing out that, that you can't just pick and choose, you know, you can't just look at a set of data, look at a high number in that data and assume that that has negative or positive consequences. Um, you, you can't get away with that anymore. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a slow education, but I think it's really positive the direction it's gone in. Um, definitely. Uh, and sort of pulling that over to something you wrote recently for um, 21st Club um, about really uh, sort of the crossover between analytics and sort of off the pitch and where that can solve problems on the pitch. Um, and you wrote about how um, analytics and how can it help a, a last-paced team avoid relegation. Um, sort of interested to know what the basis was around that um, that post. Well, um, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I basically... Um, so I've been reading this book called The Organized Mind by, uh, I think he's a McGill-based uh, psychologist, uh, Daniel Levinen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically just, um, you know, the, the neuroscience of, of how people, um, you know, overcome uh, anxiety about disorganization and, and feeling overwhelmed by by information. And he mentioned at the end a book that I, you know, apparently it's a super famous text among math students, but it's not one that I'd heard of by um, George Polia, the, uh, you know, how to solve it. Um, and I just found it really fascinating here, here you know, Basically, the thing that really drives me these days in analytics is is really sort of simple, simple algorithms um, and ways to approach thinking about complex problems that that you know you can try to reduce them in a simple way. So trying to get away from maybe more advanced, complex um, mathematical formula and just trying to think about logical ways to approach footballing problems. Mm. So he mentioned you know this this fourfold approach. Um, you know, you know, understand the problem, gather evidence. Uh, I can't remember them all offhand, but I just found a really interesting approach. And then I've been thinking lately too about, um, you know, we've done such good work. I mean, the analytics community has done such good work in uh, in developing these these uh, predictive models and shaving them down, and and you know, um, tweaking uh, things like expected goals and. and and trying to you know figure out where they go right and where they go wrong and why they're outliers in some seasons and why they're not, but in, at the same time, some of these um, more direct questions that that people in positions of power and close face like you know if I have five games to avoid relegation, is it mathematically well beyond whether it's not mathematically possible? How do is it is it even remotely possible for me with the current team that I have to avoid relegation? And so I just tried to sort of merge the two ideas um, to sort of approach. Because basically, my whole thing is trying to get people who who are wary of analytics and statistical science to try and think about these things a little more, in a little more of a common sense way. Um, and I guess I like the I like, the, uh, like Polya's sort of four 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 step system. Um, so I just tried to merge the two, and and I came out with that post. Um, basically, my favorite uh, analytics posts to write are the ones that have tons of question marks in them, because <laughs> uh, that avoids me having to make any 
any declarative statements, but it also, I think it's just, it's a fun thought exercise for, for people to sort of think about creative ways to approach uh, problems in soccer. And uh, so, yeah, so that, that was the sort of inspiration for that. Um, I think that article, cool say one thing that article really got me uh, thinking about is I had an article the same day, which was about the uh, Madrid derby and how Atletico had dominated Real Madrid throughout the season on in these Madrid derbies. And I'd looked at the shot data and it turned out that Atletico, Atletico was giving Real more and more shots than they would in a regular game, but that they were essentially just defending their own six-yard box and were keeping everything, or keep, defending their own 18-yard box, keeping almost every shot from outside the 18. And more than, I think it was 58% of Real Madrid's shots were from outside the 18-yard box. And I was looking at this and thinking, okay, so this is sort of Atletico's, uh, what their strategy is going out. And then you wrote this article on how do clubs actually take what we're using in analytics and, like, for example, how could they beat relegation? And I thought, okay, if I was working for Real Madrid and I saw this, I would have no idea what I would actually say to them to stop doing this. And it was sort of brought up the question, are, are we working on parallel sort of planes on the public analytics sphere and what clubs actually want, or are we working in different directions? What we're doing in the public sphere is it do you think it's lining up with what clubs are doing or do you think that we might be working in different working on different problems in a different directions well i think it's important that the, the objectives are, are separate and actually i think uh, part of the problem um so if we go back you know beyond five years ago maybe even 10 years ago i think the problem is clubs are approach it from uh, the perspective of of uh well we have this problem to solve how do the statistics help us and unfortunately, um, again, they ran into the problem of, of just looking at data, um, you know, maybe just raw data and, and trying to draw conclusions from that alone without wondering whether or not that data is meaningful in the long term or whether or not that, you know, tweaking um, areas of that data will, will actually improve results. And whereas the betting world, um, the, you know, betting analytics, they don't, they don't care about improving teams. They just care about predicting based on how teams are performing where they're going to finish up in the table. So, um, and I think that's, you know, as far as for betters who are interested in, in, you know, beating, beating straight, you know, beating the lines, essentially, I think that's a totally worthwhile pursuit. And I think that pursuit uh, yielded information that clubs would never have, not never, but would have very highly unlikely would have discovered on their own, right? So, you know, these, these metrics that we now know, you know, can, can predict uh, with reasonable accuracy where, where a team is going to end up at, at the end of the season. Um, so I think the point is this, these two separate approaches should be kept separate in a way, but they should also be in dialogue, right? And the whole point is figuring out, because um, we know these, the, 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 we can move the needles, the needle on some of these predictive metrics. I mean, that was the, the post I did that I was really proud of when I worked at the score was was looking at, um, you know, Maurizio Pochettino's numbers before he uh, he took over at... Um, uh, Took over at Southampton, and uh, you know, trying to see what kind of impact he'd had when he was at Espanol, and and you know, it's hard to say. You know, you never want to assign a change in total shots ratio to a single factor, but it was clear that as soon as you know he'd taken over, um, that they had adjust. You know, they had a really solid improvement in their shots ratio, and and so I just made a reasonable assumption that you know everyone is sort of crying over, over Nigel Atkins, but, but maybe in fact this was the right move at the right time for the club and that there was at least a little bit of statistical evidence that was the case. And, and lo and behold, it turned out to be something of a success. So, um, uh, you know, you don't want to get into too much confirmation bias, but at the same time, I think that the, there's, there's proof that, hey, 
individuals can do things to move these numbers, and maybe in doing so they can improve the form of their team. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just about having this constant dialogue. Well, okay, if this is a predictive metric that tells me where my team's going to finish, how can I how can I improve it? Is involved? Does it involve getting better playing personnel, or can I make you know tactical decisions that will improve these numbers? And I think that's the area that uh, we need to get into a little bit more. Um, and I think as, as long as we have an open dialogue between the two separate spheres, um, between what clubs are after and what, what public analysts are after, then, then I think that we can come up with some healthy, healthy solutions that, uh, that you know, can, can add a few points uh, to a team's total at the end of the season. Well, I, uh, I attended the Opta Pro Forum in February. And I guess that event is that sort of idea of pulling together clubs and analysts and solving problems that, that they might want solving, just so you can see the sort of, on the club side, what analysts can do, and on, on, the, analyst, on, the, on the analyst side, um, what the questions that clubs are proposing. Um, and then sort of, because these people are, these analysts are showcasing work to the clubs, um, I guess slowly clubs are going to adopt them or try and hire these people so they can keep their sort of uh, IP together and have a competitive advantage by hiring these people to so say Devin leaving, um, Tim Crawford going to the Revolution, uh, Ted Knutson going to Brentford, these sort of guys getting picked off devalues that of the the active amateur community I guess um, and something that was really interesting that you wrote was the um, trouble ahead in football analytics um, and I think the second point in that article was about losing these sort of key influences um, I mean, that's definitely a point that <clears throat> I see could happen. Um, there's obviously quite a few more people that have joined the analytics sort of area in the last six, twelve months. Um, do you do you still see that as a as a threat, as a problem? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, I, these things are cyclical, right? Um, so I wrote that uh, piece as much as sort of like a, I don't know, sort of like as a, a way to to get some more voices into the fray. I mean, and, and it, I'm not saying whatever, I'm not saying that that's going to work, but, uh, you know, sometimes I'm surprised by, I see these new writers who come up with brilliant analyses and it, now it's just a matter of making sure that they not only are recognized, uh, by the existing community, but that they become a part of it and that their voices are heard and that they can spark some debate. And, and we saw a little bit of how, you know, the good and bad that can do, like when with, um, was it Michael, was it Burton, I think his name, uh, yeah. who wrote that piece on um, take, uh, criticizing expected goals models um, for Deadspin. And, and uh, I think he sort of, you know, he, he went about it in, in a slightly more cantankerous way than he needed to, but that's obviously the Deadspin's MO. Um, but at the same time, it was nice to have someone who, you know, had a bird's eye view of what was going on in this, in the soccer um, analyst community, and 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 came up with his own, uh, you know, criticisms, and and uh, and uh, sort of sparked a brief conversation about um, about you know basically pushing Michael Cayley to write a pretty thorough defense of, of what expected goals are, are really really for in the end. I think was 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 worthwhile. Um, so I think it's just making sure that not only that we get new voices um, to to replace the ones who get hired. By clubs, but I think it's it's ensuring that those voices stay and that they constantly provoke debate and uh, um, and that that leads to better work in the end. Um, and then uh, and then yeah, it's like one or two people who really can really push the envelope in terms of developing you know um, new metrics and and 
and uh, new ways to combine, um, you know, uh, old ones. So, so yeah, um, I'm not as worried as I was when I think I wrote that piece, but I, I, I do think it, it, you know, there's a, there's a critical mass you need for, for, for this stuff to work in a public way. Um, and, uh, and it's important that, uh, that the analytics community tries to maintain that for sure. Someone who I, um, I mean, it's, it's quite a, a love-hate thing for quite a few people, I guess, but I really value the sort of stuff that Dan Altman does and um, in your piece in Betting Expert, uh, I think it was end of last week, you sort of praised the the sort of lemon-selling article that he wrote. And, um, yeah, I, I guess in a way that people staying in the community like, say, Dan Altman and, and uh, offering sort of constructive criticism and, and driving everyone forward is something that for people who are coming up with these new ideas is brilliant, but equally um, it's helping him, well, from from the post that he was bringing up, it sort of shows that people in the space, in the sort of professional space who are selling work to clubs aren't necessarily knowing what they're doing versus you have this whole collection on, on Twitter of amateurs who know what they're doing but aren't doing it in a professional sort of area. Do you see more sort of consultancies or or would it I mean say 21st Club's a really innovative company and a really great idea of, of sort of uh, third party providing these future planning and um, analysis um, sort of packages do you see sort of more of these popping up or do you think it will be more sort of primary hires from the community um, that's a really good question I, I don't honestly know I mean um, I think um uh, there's there's got to be a period of hand-holding, um, and maybe that's what the companies like 21st Club are there for, and certainly ProZone's, mm. ProZone and Opta's uh, professional wings, I think, are there for that as well. But there's um, this is a problem that's known throughout sports analytics. Uh, ben, ben Alomar wrote a great article for this uh, just ahead of Sloan uh, about the problems that clubs have because they're working... It's like, imagine you're hiring... You're hiring for um, you're hiring someone to do a job that you don't even know the value of for your company, um, and yet the person you're hiring has to be super specialized for it to work, right? Mm. So at some point you need you need someone to go into a club. At least I think you need someone to go to a club and, and hold your hand and say, "Look, you know," and demonstrate in a really viable way, in a way that a club will understand that um, we did this analysis, we changed the way that a team played, and because we changed the way that they played, we estimate that the team won four more points than they otherwise would have picked up, maybe say, I don't know, just speaking randomly here in the Premier League. Mm -hmm. And because they did that, they earned X amount of money, and this is why you can justify paying, you know, a reasonable middle, you know, middle-class salary to an in-house analyst. And if you had someone who can walk into a number of different clubs and do that, and not only do that, but also have the authority to to point to an analyst doing good work and say this person would would um, would do really really good work for your club, I think that there's inherent value to that. The problem is is that analysts are never just doing stats analysis; they're doing club analysts are building databases, they're um, and uh, they're they're doing all sorts of other work that that. Uh, um, that doesn't necessarily have to do with getting a competitive edge through, through statistical analysis. And the other problem is, is that you might you might have a club with the most brilliant analysts in the world, but if you know, like we saw in that uh, that article, I can't remember which publication it was, but but you know, quoting the the Liverpool approach to um, to how they treat their analysts, like if you're treating really really expensive mm. PhD level analysts as like just another piece of advice. 
in a crowded uh, locker room, uh, you're really, really uh, not getting the most out of the, the, the value, of the investment that you would make in an analyst like that. So it's twofold. It's like you have to, you have to really carefully walk clubs uh, into the idea that hiring analysts is a good, good thing. And then you also have to make sure that once the analysts are inside the club, that they're not being relegated to, uh, you know, to, to a, you know, cubicle in the, in the corner office or something. You really need, um, you really need a, a situation like, um, like I think we're seeing now at Brentford and, 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 in, and in Denmark is that, that, you know, where clubs value analytics first and, and foremost, and that it really, uh, influences their decision-making process from the top down. So, um, so I mean, that's what sort of what I'm more interested in is, is, is clubs sort of thinking about these things as a as a as an organization as a whole, not just oh well, other clubs have a stats analyst, we need one too. This guy's talked about a lot. Let's hire him, and then they ended up sitting in a room doing, you know, just doing basically graduate level work that's not getting any attention from the club. I don't think that's a good situation. I also think we haven't actually seen a like a blogger get hired in the same way we have in hockey. I mean, everyone who's gotten hired so far by a club has had some sort of stepping stone. I mean, Ted Knudsen was working with a betting company. Devin was with Opta. Everyone who's been hired has sort of had something to go off of and some professional experience. And I think once you do see the first couple just straight bloggers or writers, uh, public analysts get hired, there is going to be this tendency to shove them off in the corner, as you said, put them in some cubicle, and to actually establish the importance of an analyst who has only ever written for their personal blog is going to be difficult, I think, at least in the first stages, rather than actually putting them, rather than having some past experience to point to and say, I worked for this company and was actually paid to give my advice on analytics. Yeah. I mean, I think, it's, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I totally agree. I mean, it's... Uh... And, you know, this distinction that we're making between blogger and professional is, is kind of an artificial one because a lot of people that we consider amateur, you know, sports analysts are, are maybe in their own respective fields, you know, leaders and, and, and just haven't made the, you know, taken the additional step of, of making their um, analytics work professional um, by starting, you know, a consultancy company or whatever. So I think that we have to be careful about labels in this situation because they can, they can be, you know, handed out. And it's also even maybe if you're not you know you don't you don't have ten years experience as an as an economist or or a data analyst at a company that doesn't even matter. It's, what matters is the is whether the ideas are valuable. And you know I think that was again coming back to that expected goals piece is that you know even even uh, even flawed um, predictive models if there's some rig- residual value there, um, there's still something you can tease out of that that will offer a club something. Uh, something of an edge that they have over the rest of the league. So, so I think that um, we should look at the. I, I really, honestly think we should really be careful about um, ensuring that that we're talking about the quality of the work itself, and and not you know the necessarily the uh, you know coming up with labels um, for the for the pedigree of the individual uh, individual authors, right? So. Mm. So yeah, it's a tricky balance, and I think it's it's hard for clubs too because they're wading through this this field, not knowing, you know, not knowing what separates a great analyst from a you know an okay analyst, and and what separates you know someone who's going to do really good work for them between someone who's just going to sort of spin their wheels and, and and not really be able to speak up, and then and then that's even before we get into the other issue of whether or not analysts are going to be able to 
be confident enough in themselves to speak up when when they're in a position of being being able to uh, you know be in a dialogue with the club, right? So so there's a lot going on there for sure. Um, I guess sort of final question would be: What advice have you sort of got for people who aren't necessarily trying to work for clubs but are trying to grow audiences with regards to getting into say journalism or data journalism or even trying to write in the analytics area and I hate to say it, steal your uh, steal your niche. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I mean, it'd be nice if there were other people, you know, trying to do specifically what I would. I mean, it's not that there aren't. Like, I think Sean Engel. I think that people generally um, do this on a more mainstream level than I do um, uh, are doing it really well. Um, you know, a few exceptions here and there, but I think generally the the quality of the work from the people who are interested in in uh, you know data journalism are doing it the right way um and uh i think can i think that people when they think about data journalism they sort of think about uh writing about you know traditional stories but adding in numbers and i think that's a really that's a really um that's a kind of a mistake and i think that uh if you look at the guys who get the most attention it's because they're they're looking at they're treating the analytics itself as the story so I think of uh, I think it's um, uh, Adam Bate at uh, Sky who's, who's done a ton of stories on on uh, data analysis, um, and then obviously Sean Engel I already mentioned Jonathan Liu. So I think the guys who are doing it the best are treating the um, the movement itself and and the work itself as the story, as opposed to sort of trying to you know uh, I don't want to disparage any websites, but there are some websites who encourage their data to be used as part of as an adjunct to a, a traditional story about football, and I think that's that's to me far less interesting, far less useful than than just looking at what's happening in the field and saying this is really cool, and or this this may be cool, we don't know yet, or, or you know, um, so so yeah, I think uh, I think that would be my advice is is don't don't try to sort of pepper your your writing with 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 data analysis. Um, uh, don't don't try to be an analyst if you're not. Um, and uh, always ask questions, and 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 I think treat treat the, uh, you know, treat the good work that's being done as the story because it's a, it's of mutual benefit because um, you get to expose their work to a wider audience, and 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 you get to, uh, you know, you, it's just another fun thing to write about for you. So so yeah. Um, cool, cool. Sam, anything? No, just thanks for coming on. Uh, next time we come on, we can do talk about Canadian Div Three and the Eastern Report, right? Yeah, yeah, anytime, man. I I haven't talked about that in years now. Uh but it's like I'm I'm that's kind of still one of the things I'm most proud of. Um uh it's still unbelievable to me that uh, that League One Ontario exists and 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 I'm, you know, I'm pleasantly I don't want to say surprised pleased by the way that uh that uh, the local associations and the CSA have, have taken on this issue. I don't want to bore our listeners, but <laughs> But but can you yeah. give sort of the, the high level breakdown of what what happened with League One Ontario? Well, uh, okay. Well, this could be a whole other podcast. But basically, <laughs> a few years ago, um, I was uh, I was approached by uh, James Easton, who is a former Canadian national team player, and he has his own consultancy group called. Uh, Re- he does super high level work, um, stuff that I can't even talk about. Uh, I don't think. Um, um, you know, at the at the um, governance level of the sport, 
And uh, so he um, he read stuff that I had written on Canadian Soccer for an old website of mine, um, and uh, and wanted me to sort of um, edit and also contribute some um, some stuff on uh, Canadian soccer history for a report um, that he was going to submit to the CSA that they had sort of commissioned to look at the viability of Division Two soccer in Canada. So we. What started off as an editorial thing and a, and a little history section kind of took on like a became like a, a year and a half long conversation about what should be done and how does Canadian soccer improve and and we sort of um, had this long consultancy with with fans and professionals in the game and and everyone sort of overwhelmingly backed the idea of a CHL sort of um, style so Canadian Hockey League style. Um, approach where you have three sort of divisions playing in the three major population re- um, regions in Canada, and uh, and sort of all coming together to compete at the end for for a single cup competition that kind of thing. So uh, and so we submitted that to the CSA, and out of that uh, out of that I think came the birth of of, of League One Ontario, um, and uh, and they've just sort of been doing super well ever since, and and producing some some I don't want to say producing, but but forming a link you know, for, uh, Canadian players who've gone on to do, to do amazing things. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, it was, it was a really long, arduous process. It was hard to see where it was going to end up and I didn't know if the CSA would ever accept the recommendations, but, uh, but James Easton did some incredible things with that, that report. So, so it was, I'm really proud to have been a small part of it for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. That is, uh, yeah. So you're a writer and a lead creator. That's, that's kind of, kind of. <laughs> well, not not really. That, that other people did the heavy lifting. But, uh, I, I just I just w- wagged my finger at them and said, "You should do this." So, <laughs> actually, James did. I just helped edit it. That's all. <laughs> cool. Um, anything you want to plug before we uh, wrap up? Uh, not much. Um, you know, you can find me at Twitter or at or uh, sorry at R Whittle. Um. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know if, if you're listening to this first podcast. Chances are, you know, you probably know that handle. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I just I don't know. I, I write for a bunch of different people. Sometimes it's about analytics, and and uh, they can catch it there. Cool. Um, we'll put uh, Richard's Twitter handle in the in the bio, um, and your website as well, uh, RichardWiddle.com. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Your portfolio. Cool. Nice one. Okay. Um, thanks for your time, Richard. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for talking to you guys. It was it's great, and congrats. I'm glad someone. Uh, I'm glad there's another podcast doing this sort of thing. So I'm I'm pleased that you guys are the ones to do it for sure. Richard for coming on. Um, I think that's a really sort of interesting debate around his overview of the sort of community, uh, where it's going, where it's come from, um, where he sees things changing. Um, yeah, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes as well. Um, and if you if you enjoy the podcast, give us a, a star rating, whether it be one or five, or some feedback, whatever. It'd be nice to just sort of. Um, gauge a bit of interest. Please don't give us one. One would be very mean. Two at least. I think. <laughs> I think we merit a two. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. At least two, maybe three. If we can push three for the first episode, we'll take that. <laughs> so yeah. Um. And any uh, questions or comments um, to me and Sam on Twitter, I'm at Warville. 
Sam, you're at... Gregory D. Sam. Um, and also we've got an email account of analyticsfcpodcast at gmail.com. Um, cool. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Sam. Thanks. <laughs>